This podcast is brought to you by Workle, a platform helping people get happier at work. Find out more at workle.co. Work happier. Me, I'm quite competitive. A big driver for me was being the best I could be. I'd seen the London Marathon, I think, on TV. I remember saying to my mum I was going to do it one day, and she was like, yeah, okay, you know. I trained hard and I trained smart. Twice a day, six days a week, 50 weeks a year. What are you going to do when you retire? Very grandly said to my head of department that I was never going to work in politics because that was for losers. Welcome to the Happy Work Life podcast, where people with inspiring careers reflect on how happy they have been in their working lives. On this podcast, we hear from a range of people working in business, startups, science, academia, media, healthcare, fashion, and much more and find out which roles gave them the most satisfaction and, importantly, what they have done to get happier at work. So, sit down with me, Mark Price, founder of Workle, to help you get happier at work. Workle is the platform where you can find a job in the happiest companies, take our happiness test, network and get career support from experts and much, much more. I'm delighted that on this edition of the Happy at Work Life podcast, I'm joined by a truly inspirational figure. She is the chair of Sport Wales. She's the chair of the trustees of the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, but she's also Britain's greatest ever para-Olympian. Tammy Gray Thompson began her Olympic career in Seoul in 1988 and went on to win 11 gold medals, six silver medals and a bronze medal over a career that stretched for nearly 16 years in Olympic Games. Beyond that, she's uh, involved in sports, administration, and is also a member of the House of Lords, which she joined in 2010. Tani, it's absolutely wonderful to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to to be with you. So I'd like to start, and I suspect all the people listening to this would like to start with your childhood. You became an ins- an inspirational, gold-winning Olympian. How did all of that start? Were your parents mad keen on sport? Or did you go to a school that was sports mad? It was a combination of everything, actually. So my parents both loved sports. Uh, my dad played a lot of sport. My mum watched a lot of sport. I'm Welsh, so I grew up believing Gareth Edwards is the closest thing to perfection that will ever walk this earth. My mum was very biased towards Welsh rugby. My dad was much more even-handed. So actually between the two of them, it was quite useful. So, you know, when I became more seriously involved in sport and I'd done a race, mum wanted to know, did I win? And my dad was, did you race well? Because they're two quite different things, but they're both, you know, important to, to have. But also just, you know, was lucky that I had parents that, were able to give me lots of opportunities, you know, to go swimming and horse riding and things like that. So, you know, that that age, that that made a massive difference to me. But then also my high school was very sporty and I went to uh, state school, but we had a swimming pool, which, you know, really unusual. Um, so, we, and we had really good sports facilities. So there was kind of support all along the way for me. And, and then a lot of it's just me. I'm quite competitive, much more relaxed in re- retirement. Well, I think I am, um, retirement from sport, but um, yeah, just the, there was something inside, you know, that that drove me want to to want to participate and do well. And a big driver for me was 
being the best I could be. And whether winning comes with that or not, that's something indifferent, you know, but but just being the best I could be. And where do you think that came from, that desire to win? I don't know, really. I mean, just um, my grandfather um, was a motorcyclist um, and raced things like the TT. Uh, and so, you know, there was kind of that sort of a, a, around in the, the family or, you know, just knowledge of that's what he'd done. Um, he'd been, I think, think fair to say quite a frustrated sports person because his his dad didn't think that was a real job so even though he was like super talented and won lots of races um he, he wasn't able to kind of carry on his career so I think that has an impact on my parents actually I, I think if I'm honest my granddad was it kind of lived with him that he hadn't been able to sort of hadn't been allowed to try and reach his potential and I think that had an impact on on, on my dad um, in terms of giving myself and my sister opportunities. Looking back at those early years, I, I think I'm right in saying I might be wrong, that um, the school that you went to, you were the first person to go there in a wheelchair and you pushed hard to do that. So my primary school, um, I was the first wheelchair user there, but I could walk um, when I started school, not very well because I've got spina bifida. So I'm missing some vertebrae at the back of my spinal cord. And as I grew, my spine collapsed and my vertebra um, severed my spinal cord so primary school junior school was great you know what I needed was an accessible school not uh, special as, as it was called at the time special ed um, and what we realized when I was sort of nine and ten years old that special ed was pretty poor you just they basically didn't educate the children so my, my parents used the work of uh, Mary Warnock Baroness Warnock uh, and basically threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to go to a mainstream school using her work uh, so my parents were pretty stroppy, you know, they just recognised that education was key and, and that would make a difference to me. So that's how I got to go to mainstream school because my parents were a complete pain in the neck. Um, and then a really important moment for me was 30 years later, um, from that moment, I'm sitting by then in the House of Lords in a debate tabled by Baroness Warnock talking about the 30 years since her seminal piece of work. And I got to sit there and say, because of you, I'm here. Um, she didn't look terribly impressed, to be honest, but, um, but you know, um, education and whether that's formal education or informal education, my, my parents, they were a really long way ahead of their time in lots of ways. So, you know, my, my parents believed in me play multi-sports at 16, 17, you know, not concentrating too early, which, you know, is generally recognised as a good thing. You know, the, the stuff that my parents encouraged around school, around education, we now call enrichment. There wasn't a name for it back then. It was just my parents being really cool. So, you know, they were really long way ahead of their time in terms of the opportunities. You were in a wheelchair from the age of seven, but it was at the age of 13 you started racing, I think. So what decided you on that? Because you were saying that your parents encouraged you to do all sorts of sports. So what? why did that become the thing it was just sort of access to it. So um, I'd seen the London Marathon, I think, on TV and thought that that was sort of pretty exciting. Um, remember saying to my mum I was going to do it one day and she was like, yeah, OK, you know, just I mean, mum, mum was really supportive. But I think she, she sometimes she just looked at some of these things and was sort of like, OK, uh, you know, she sort of said, yeah, yes to me. Not, not probably not entirely sure whether I was actually ever going to do these things. It was school sports day and I just had the chance to 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 try it and I don't know what connect there was just something connected straight away it was just like this is the best sport ever and, and that's what I wanted to do and um, I was I wasn't very good for a very long time but um, I, I enjoyed it and actually that's a, a really important thing because you know now 
we, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about performance pathways and elite sport and, and, and being good. But actually what I say to any young athlete, you've, you've always got to love it because you don't always like it. So, you know, and don't necessarily just jump at the first sport you think you're good at because there's a long trajectory to go to be really good. So, you know, the, the fact that my parents encouraged me to play different sports was great because there were times when you go, mm, it's a bit boring or the weather's horrible or, and, you know, I, I, I think it's great where we are in British sport in terms of elite success. But also I think we've got to sort of measure that sometimes about actually just having fun. And, and that's what kept me going through my career was um, whatever I was doing, I had fun. You said it took a, a long time for you to get good, which isn't quite true because you were the national champion at the age of 17. Yeah, I didn't really win a, a race before that, though. So, <laughs> so I was a bit of a surprise winner. So I, I was improving and I joined a club and had a coach and was making all these sort of steps. But I'm not sure many people looked at me 13, 14, 15 and a half and thought oh she's going to be really good um but but i think you know what i uh, i i guess i i learned from doing it and i i knew i was improving and making these baby steps i'm not sure anyone else did but actually you know i think that was really good for me because i was kind of under the radar so there wasn't this really high expectation of what i was going to do so um so by the time people went oh actually you you could be quite good I was kind of quite subtle in sport. I think it's really hard when, if you're a young athlete, and, and what I would say, we, we do sometimes get a little bit obsessed in this country with going, oh, you're talented. You know, by the time I got to that stage, I was quite settled in myself. And, you know, I just learned to, to live with where I was. And that's hard because I think, you know, we see it in football, we see it in lots of other sports. You know, you, you sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll get a 12 year old and they go, oh, you, you're gonna be the next big thing. But at 13, you might not be good enough. And you're then saying to a 13 year old, you're not good. And then they assume they, they're not good at anything and there's no value. And, you know, so th that talent stuff and being labeled talented, I don't think it is always helpful. Tell me how you go from being 13 and classing yourself as um, not very good to being a national champion at 17. What, what does that take, Tanny? Lots of really boring training. I mean, training is really dull. Um, it, it's kind of funny because I think, you know, we're very lucky in this country. Lots of people in sport and it's really good. And, and there's lots of people go, oh, I'd give, you know, my right arm to be an elite athlete. And, you know, and you see the glamorous bits and there are bits which are very glamorous, either competing in lovely places around the world or going to lots of glamorous events. Um, you know, that looks great. The reality is it's really dull. You know, it's it's twice a day, six days a week, 50 weeks a year. My wedding was based on my competition schedule. The birth of my daughter was, you know, we didn't do family holidays. We went on training camps. You know, I took my daughter on a training camp to Spain when she was three weeks old because I was back in training for Commonwealth Games for when she was six months old. So wouldn't change a moment of it. I loved it. But, um, you know, there are some things with, with, with that that people don't see the dull stuff. And what I was good at doing... I was good at making myself train and I trained hard and I trained smart and there's changed sessions I changed in my career but hard, I mean like maybe a handful that I missed so um, I, I think the other thing I was good at was making myself work on the things that I wasn't good at which is where you show most improvement so you know what got me to be good was just 
recognizing really early on you've got to do dull stuff to get to the nice stuff and that's true now in my working life you know i'm in parliament at the moment you spend a lot of time answering emails reading briefing papers reading documents writing speeches for that moment when you get to the chamber when you've got two minutes to take people with you or not sport and politics is linked in so many ways Moving to university, uh, it's no surprise to me that you went to probably the university in our country that's most renowned for its sporting prowess, um, Loughborough. So why did you pick Loughborough and tell us about what you studied? Um, I picked Loughborough because Seb Coe gone there. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a lot more complicated than that, to be honest. Um, so I remember starting to look at universities and, and talking to my parents about it and, and thinking about what options I might have. And um, I remember my dad saying, well, look at Loughborough. And I thought, OK, why? You know, and, and one of the things, you know, is having to look at a lot of sort of access issues and, and things like that. And my dad was like, well, Seb went there. Uh, and it's like, oh, OK. Um, and, and that was it for me then. That, that really was it. That was just where I wanted to go. And, um, you know, lucky enough to, to, to be there. And it was the sort of place where, and they didn't really get wheelchair racing when I was there, um, because there wasn't a lot of media coverage. And there was a bit of an attitude at the time that disability sports, not serious, so, you know, it's, um, you know, isn't it lovely what you people do. Um, but um, it was the sort of place where the training facilities were good, the people were good. Um, I, I struggled a bit with the athletics club well they just didn't really know what to do with me because we don't train like runners so you know when you're talking about you know being able to do multiple distances you know that that doesn't fit into sort of really easily defined training within within the club so I, I joined the mountaineering club and they were brilliant and I did a lot of training with them um, because it was all upper upper body it was it was better suited to what I, I needed to do and, and 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 to be. So I think what Loughborough gave me was um, a couple of things, which I think they sometimes struggle when I say this, but I, I do mean this in a positive way that, you know, it, it really challenged me to go, am I, I just going to try and fit in or am I going to actually do what's best for me as an athlete, which was join different clubs, train in a different way, train on the road, not on the track, because I couldn't get on the track, you know, um, had a wall and a gate with a key. So anyone could jump over the wall except me. So actually just trying to train on the track was just too hard so I went and trained on the road and that's when I suddenly made a big big jump but it also taught me to deal with some very interesting people in sport you know who didn't really value disability sport or didn't really get the Paralympics or didn't get women um combination of so it taught me to deal with those people and and that toughened me up um and so I did have someone um who's not really involved in our sport anymore, say to me a little while ago, oh, you're very difficult, aren't you? And I always think that's funny because difficult being used towards a woman brings a, a number of connotations. But it's like, well, the kind of sport made me that way as well, you know, a bit of a yin and yang with it. So you know, I, I don't try to be. But but also, you know, there are lots of bits along the way where we, we've had to sort of fight for, for recognition. Um, and a lot of that was really good fun. It was really, you know, you know, some of the things I've had to deal with, um, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it sounds like I'm really grumpy about it, but I'm not because actually it's made me who I am. But, you know, um, that, that there's a few people around who, who sort of 
didn't really speak to me till I came into the House of Lords. And then you go, well, you didn't speak to me in all the years I was in sports. So why now? Oh, I wonder it's because of, you know, the builds around me. But, you know, I, I, I also see a lot of this is like um, how we educate people. You know, some of the attitudes I dealt with is not because they were, you know, mean, horrible people. They just didn't understand. So, so I, I kind of think a little bit of what I have to do is about educating people as well. And do you think that that part of your life was seminal in terms of making you into who you were, given all of those experiences? I do, in, in kind of a, a, a good way, because, you know, elite sport's really tough. You know, it's not, you know, it, it's the training, the expectation, it's, it's what people, you know, the, the boredom of it. So, you you know, I always say, you know, elite sport is not warm and cuddly. You know, there's lots of bits around fit that can be. And, you know, within your training group and your training partners and, you know, you have lots of amazing people around. But um, you, you've, you've got to be tough mentally and physically to be the best. And, and we, we spend a lot of time teaching children and young people how to train physically. We don't teach young people how to build resilience. And what we value in sport is people who have resilience early on and then we build on that and so I just think there's a lot more that we can do both in in sport and in business to help build resilience now my resilience changes daily sometimes several times a day depending what mood I'm in you know sometimes it's brilliant sometimes it's not you know you have all these sort of different things but but I do think there's a lot more that we we can do to to build the resilience to to enable people to reach their potential and how, how whatever you your potential is it's getting to it and how do you do that, Tony? So that's by dealing with 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 lots of little things. You know, it's dealing with some of those microaggressions, um, and it's dealing with some of the bigger ones. Um, I think for me, it's having really good people around me. You know, I've got a bunch of critical friends who are fab. You know, they're just real. So, um, you know, they they watch the Parliament Channel, um, and if they think I've done a bad speech, they'll tell me. Um, you know. Uh, I, I gave a speech oh, about two years ago and I thought I'd done really well. And I rang my sister and said, what do you think? And she went, yeah, you need to brush your hair. <laughs> were, you, were you listening? And she went, no, I wasn't really listening because should I just, I kind of just kept thinking you didn't brush your hair before you went in. And she said, and I won't be the only person. And the reality is she won't be the only person thinking that. Um, you know, so there's some of those things. It's, it's I, I think having good really solid people around is the most important thing in my life actually so people who will just be honest with me about what they think I'm doing and whether they think I'm being the best I can be. So you graduated from Loughborough what did you do then? I actually did a politics degree very grandly said to my head of department that I was never going to work in politics because that was for losers that was quite funny <laughs> I thought it was at the time. The plan was I, I went to uh, be an athlete and the plan was to do it for a year and see where I got to. And I'd been able to save a bit of money and um, just to, to, to go off. And, and, and for me, that made a massive difference because I was just then able to do a, a lot more higher quality races at times a year that I couldn't because I was, I was studying. So for me, I made a big jump in, in that year that... Um, so between 91 and um, Barcelona in 92. So then when I went into Barcelona, I won four golds and the silver, broke two world records. Then that gave me another platform to, to continue. 
being an athlete. So I always worked alongside, um, sometimes full-time, sometimes not, um, partly because, again, this is my parents, um, you know, dad, every year my dad used to say to me, what are you going to do when you grow up? And you're like, I am grown up. And he'd be like, no, no, what are you going to do when you retire? So he, he was always very keen to, um, to think about building skills for when I stopped. So that when I, I did, you know, either stop or not selected anymore, because the reality is, you know, most athletes don't choose when they retire. I, I was always keen that I'd have something else to transition into. So for me, and, and also, it's really boring. I know I keep saying how boring training is, but if all you do is train, if you go to a dinner and go, what do you do? Well, I train. You know, no one really wants to listen to you talking about doing six 200s off a minute recovery, you know, because that's quite a short conversation. So, um, and then I can't remember what point, I remember Michael Jordan saying, doing an interview where he said that uh, he always read the Wall Street Journal. So I didn't read that, but, you know, again, that is that bit, the education came, came into it. So always did lots of things so that the moment I decided or it was decided for me that I was done, there would be something else that would replace it. So nothing else will replace competing in front of, 100,000 people in Sydney, but I also don't want it to. So, but but actually it's about that fulfillment and it doesn't, you know, matter what that is, there were athletes older than me that I knew that never transitioned out of elite sport very well. And and for me, I never kind of wanted to be always looking back at my career. I just want to be, okay, well, what's what's next? Just, just tell us a little about the highs and lows of being a professional um, sports person. The highs are doing well, and and so I I find it hard to dissociate the medals with good performances because actually and and this has been the way for a really long time. We we measure success in gold medals, not even silvers and bronzes. Silvers and bronzes, silvers count when there's a tie for gold, and bronzes count when there's a tie for gold and silver. So that that's a very binary way of looking at it. But again, coming back to my mum and dad, it was like okay. Did you so if I had to pick top 10 races I'd ever done, half would be races where I won, and half would be races where I did absolutely everything I could in that race to be really good, and I didn't win. So that was kind of really um important. So the highs are pushing yourself to your limit, and probably for me, like world records were like really cool, knowing that no one had gone quicker and knowing that there was nothing left on the on the finish line. So I, I always think the 400s are the really hard ones to time because the 100 and 200 you there's not a lot of tactics really 400 you've got a there's eight segments and you've got to nail each segment and that's really hard when your heart rate's about 210 and you can see the finish line approaching reasonably quickly so um that bit where if you time it wrong and you run out of being able to push two meters before the line you're stuffed if you finish and you've got another couple of pushes in you stuff and then if you time it absolutely right not actually throwing up on the finish line is a massive achievement and and i love that that was just that's the bit i miss um because people oh, do you miss it well, not really that that bit when you just time it to perfection it's amazing so the good bits of that the low bits are uh get injuries not performing well not being able to figure out why you're not performing well um people's expectations so you know there's race big races that i've lost where people are like well i thought you were going to win well it doesn't work like that um feeling like you've let people down that's a big one for me so it sounds really petty but 
traveling with a full British team can be amazing. But when you've come off a really long flight and there's 350 of you and you've each got two kit bags and they are identical, spending six hours at the airport trying to figure out whose bag is who. I mean, that my, my daughter would turn around to me and go, first world problems and go, yeah, that is totally a first world problem. Yes, Karis, I know. But, but you know, there's stuff like that that, you know, defies a bit of the gla glamour of it, you know, that, you know, where you just want to take the uniform on. So for me, when I stopped competing, it's like, right, okay, I'm done. And I was very, I, I chose what I was going to stop. Um, there were people who thought I should keep going. I, I decided that was it. Only told a very small number of people. I was clear. And it was like, right, I no longer have to be the athlete. For me, that was a big sense of relief and peace. But then what was interesting was that people still see me like that. And, and it took a little bit of time to get used to it because in my head, I was like, I'm not that athlete anymore. So don't call me the athlete. Um, you're always a Paralympian or you're an ex-athlete. You know, in my head, it was like, I'm done. Uh, it took a little while to 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 get that people would still talk about me in that way, and it was sort of really funny. Um, before Tokyo Paralympics, I was at local petrol station, and and someone stopped me and said, "Oh, you're going to Tokyo?" And it's like, "Yeah, I am," and not really lucky because there weren't many journal journalists going or commentators. And I was like, "Yeah, I'm going." And they went, "Oh, how's your training going? Good luck." <laughs> and then I'm afraid it was all very British. It was like, "Do I sense them? Do I not? Do I?" tell him I retired in 2007 so I just went thank you very much that's very kind of you like I'm 53 or oh, now I was 51 you know it was like what do, do you think someone this old's competing so you know I, I think it's all that very British stuff where you just go thank you yeah I'll and then, take the flattery I'll and then hope and then hopefully he, he never sees the fact I'm not competing that I'm commentating I'll, I'll deal with that one if ever I see him again some of the people I talk to when they've been very successful in their careers, regret the amount of time they've put into building that career over other things. Um, family, kids, going out, friends. How, how do you view all of that? I don't think there's anything I regret. I think you've got to own, you've got to own it. And, you know, at, at that point in my life, it was what I really, really wanted to do. So, you know, it's there are moments where it, it hasn't always been easy. I, I kind of think about, you know, the impact my sports careers had on my daughter. Yeah. You know, you, you do think about that. Um, but then also I think, you know, because of the stuff that I've done, she has an opportunity to, to do things in a, a different way where, where I have struggled with, with people is, is much more, now I'm in politics and it's different because she's 21 so you know but but when she was smaller um people coming up to her and telling her what they thought of me as a politician um and using really inappropriate language when you are talking to a child you know um so you know someone coming up to her when she was eight saying to her tell your mum she's a beep 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 politician Great. So don't, don't, don't tell me. That's not a problem. And I will have a very calm conversation with you. But don't do so. That's the bit I I get angry about and passionate about. But do I I kind of think you just have to own these things because at the time it was what I wanted to, to do. And that's not to say I haven't gone through bits of guilt with thinking about Karis and and sort of you know the fact 
I was and I'm away from home a, a lot. But she's actually, I think, quite balanced about it as well. So I think it's about finding that centre for her, which was my husband. So my husband was home with her all the time. So, you know, it's, it's about finding that balance. Um, be really interested in her view of it because <laughs> she might have a entirely different, I mean, slightly differently. I remember, um, oh, she was about six, talking to her about being away and, you know, trying to kind of frame it in sort of context that she could understand and saying, you know, you know, kind of, do you miss me or, do you, you know, and, um, you know, is there anything that you find really difficult? Um, and and I, I was expecting to say, you know, what people say to her. And she turned around to me, she said, yeah, there's there's one thing that, that's really bad. And I was like, okay, and you know, you're preparing for this. And she said, um, mummies are meant to be bigger than their children and I'm bigger than you. Okay, and is, is, is that, you know, and she went, Okay, so you know it's it it's it's a really good question to ask though because it is really complicated that the stuff that I did you know has given me the the platform and the life that I have now. So yeah, it it's I'm a bit of a fatalist I think about some of some of these things. I, I try and learn from the past, but you you can't the things that get you somewhere. I think there's things you can do differently, but you know that's what you learn and, and do better in the future. And as you were saying earlier, there's a lot of elite athletes that really struggle to move forward, but but you've done that brilliantly. So talk to us a little about your, your life um, after retirement. So you prepared for that. Talk us through what you did. And then um, I'd love to know your view of politics today. I always did lots of other things. So I, uh, I sat on the board of Sport Wales. I sat on the board of... Uh, Sport England Lottery Fund, which at that point in time we were spending, we had 20 million a month to spend on um, capital projects in England. I started on UK Sports, so learned sports admin, um, uh, and and did lots, did did some work with government on votes at 16 and lots. But then also traveling the world as an athlete, you get to see how disabled people and women are treated in other countries around the world. So that informed a, a lot of the views that that I have have now. So. Um, didn't think that I was going to go into politics, uh, but then it was one of those things where the opportunity came to, to come in as a as a crossbencher. Uh, and for us, there's a, a an interview route, uh, and it's the most bizarre interview process ever, where they sort of don't necessarily look at what they, they sort of look a bit at what you've done. But they're just much more interested in in saying, look, if you had this platform, what would you do with it? And that's that's like really powerful, actually. To to I mean, if nothing else, if I hadn't have got through the process, it's the most amazing personal development experience because it challenges you to think really differently about what what you you, you do. So um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting. Some people think I'm here just because I used to go around in circles, um, but actually, it was. Um, it was much more about the other stuff I did around um, the kind of the work experience. So also I worked in athletics development officer and ran projects and, you know, so did, so actually, I mean, it's great. They, they now call it portfolio career. My dad would say it's not having a proper job. Um, doing lots of different things gave me loads of experience to, to then. So when I came to the Lords, I was very briefly the youngest peer. Um, uh, and then there's only one way you go. Uh, but um, you know, it 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 gave me the opportunity to to fight for the things I care about. 
And what would you say now to that politics lecture at um, <laughs> Loughborough University? So one of my friends from uni wrote to him and said, you'll never guess, have you seen Tannies in the House of Lords? <laughs> I, I think it's probably fair to say he might have been somewhat surprised. <laughs> so yeah, never never be too flippant in, in some of the things that, that you, you say, but... Um... If you were to look back now and be able to advise your 15-year-old self, 16-year-old self, yeah. what advice would you give yourself? Probably a bit on who, who you pick a fight with. <laughs> um, but you kind of have to own those moments, don't you, as well? Um, you know, I'd say I was, I was very passionate about sort of sport and, and, and inclusion. Um, and there were times through d different bits where, you know, people sort of in sport didn't value disability sport. And I probably struggled with that a bit. And I would be seen as being quite feisty. Um, somebody said to me a while ago, you're very direct, aren't you? And we talked about disability inclusion. What was quite funny, I toned down quite a lot of, of what I was saying in my head. You know, if it was volume button, I'd turn it down from 10 to 1. Uh, and they thought it was, you know, so I, I very politely explained that, you know, actually I was, I felt I was being quite measured in what I was saying. So, yeah, there's, there's a few of those things. that, But then that's made me who I am. And sometimes, sometimes it's being brave enough to say things which are difficult, which is still difficult, even, you know, with the platform I now have. So, um, you know, sometimes you've just got to be out there. And my last question, uh, having asked you to look back, is to look forward. Um, how do you view the future? Oh, that's a really good one. Um, I'm kind of a glass um, half full type of person. I think most, the vast majority of the time. Um, so, you know, I, I think what you learn from sport is that resilience, persistence, you know, keep going, keep trying different things. Um, and, you know, in politics, stuff will always come around again for a debate. At some, you know, we never sort of do a subject and go, right, that's it. We are never going to debate it ever again. I think in the, the list of things that I'd like to achieve, there's, there's, you know, lots to do. So there's some stuff in sport that, myself and um a number of other people have worked on sort of together and separately for a number of years uh so sarah champion mp tracy crouch on on protecting children in sport between us in different ways uh, legislation got across the line where it's now illegal for a sports coach to be in a sexual relationship with a 16 and 17 year old sarah worked on that for i did seven years on it sarah worked on it for way longer than me you know so these sort of moments that you you kind of hope that you're doing stuff that benefits people sometimes and this is really hard is that you kind of you, you try and disadvantage the least number of people and that's a different way that that's that's a really hard way um it, that's the bit i struggle in politics is when you kind of realize by the stuff that you're doing um there's there's people who aren't happy or don't like what you're doing and you're not doing it to try and mess with their lives or make life difficult for them you're doing it because you're, you're trying to do the right thing. And I think, uh, Tani, we all know that um, you'll definitely do that. You'll definitely try to do the right thing. Can I thank you on behalf of all of our listeners, not just for being on this podcast, but for giving us such enormous pleasure through your sporting career, for uh, sitting on sofas and cheering and being in stadiums and cheering, but also now for putting all that you've learned to brilliant use through 
um, all you do with sport and the um, Duke of Edinburgh uh, Trust in the UK, um, and also for all that you do in the House of Lords. Thank you very much. Thank you. To listen to more episodes and find out how to get happy in your working life, head to workall.co. Work happier.